0: Each of you today, uh, if you came to hear Steve, I'm sorry to disappoint you. I'm sorry not to hear him also. Uh, really been enjoying his uh, classes on uh, intentional grandparenting. Being both a grandparent and a great grandparent, I'm certainly glad to get some tips about how to deal with that, especially since all of mine are far, far away and have very little personal contact with them. So I have to be innovative in ways that he's been talking about. At any rate, he's out of town today and asked me to take his place. And I'm not going to try to follow up with the grandparents thing. He's covering that adequately. Been thinking a great deal recently about uh, what's referred to as the women's issue in the church. Uh, I'm convinced that that's going to be our next really major question that will cause uh, splits across the brotherhood. Already several congregations, not here but around us, have made proclamation to the effect that uh, they have restudied that issue and they have decided that women can preach and they will be using them in all kinds of public uh, forums. And uh, uh, I know that, well, I don't know, but I imagine, I expect, I, I think, that both everybody here is already convinced about that But I think it's helpful sometimes not only to know what we're opposed to, but also to know why we're opposed to it. And for that reason, I'd like to take a close look at what the Bible says about uh, women and submission and women in public worship. I call this lesson God, Women, and Submission. Uh, Let me begin as I often try to begin. I don't think I have all the answers. Sometimes I wonder if I even know all the questions, but I do believe what the Bible says, and I think I have a fairly good grasp of what the Bible says about this subject, but I also know I've been mistaken about things in the past I was fairly sure of, but it's always possible I will be again. If what I says this morning gives you reason and scripture for believing what I'm suggesting is true. Then certainly you'll be obligated to follow it, and I'm sure that you will. Uh, if I don't convince you with my reason in Scripture, I wouldn't want to convince you just because I said so. Your faith doesn't need to stand in me, it needs to stand in Scripture, in God, in Christ, and in what they say to you in Scripture. And I'm not suggesting they say something to me they don't say to you, or vice versa. But I am saying, unless you see it there, don't accept it just because I say it. Your your scripture, your faith is not. Bounded in me. It's got to be bounded in, in God, in Christ, and Scripture. Uh, the Bible starts out with a fundamental truth that was shocking in the day in which it was first proposed. And that is that men and equal, men and women, Jew and Gentile, servant and master, are all level at the foot of the cross. When we come to salvation... There's not one plan of salvation for men, another for women, not one for blacks and another for whites. There's one plan of salvation for all. Everybody in the world, whatever their status, needs salvation because we're sinners. And the same message of salvation and the same uh, basic response to God's offer of grace is, is for everyone. And on that basis, Paul says in Galatians 3, verses 26 and 27, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God, Maybe children of God would be better for the, our, our service. You're all children of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither male nor female. There is neither bond nor free. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring and heirs according to the promise. Likewise, in 1 Peter 3.21, where husbands are told to live with their wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. Women, generally speaking, are weaker physically than men. And that's what he's talking about here. As the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life. King James says heirs together of the grace of life. Neither Jew nor Greek, neither bond nor free, neither male nor female, heirs together of the grace of life are some fundamental truths that uh, the Bible uh, starts with. Now, that doesn't necessarily rule out the possibility of different roles. For example, slaves and masters have different roles in the passages that are addressed to them, and we would apply that today, I think, to uh, employers and employees. He assigns different roles for men and women, and the, 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 the effort that is being made today by what I call extreme feminist, to try to erase all differences between men and women is simply futile. The differences are too obvious and, 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 and too pervasive uh, to be uh, erased. A long time ago, I'm told, in France, uh, there was a uh, speech being made in the French Parliament in which somebody said, and there are differences between men and women. And somebody stood up and said, "Vive la difference! <laughs> and maybe most of us would feel that way uh, about it. As a fundamental truth recognized by everyone, uh, men and women bear entirely different roles in the uh, propagation of the race and in bringing children into the world. And that's just one difference that uh, has something to do, perhaps, with many of the other differences. In several instances, women are told to submit uh, to men, they submit to men in the home, wives. Submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. Uh, they submit to one another in the Lord, in church, in worship. I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over men, is the passage that uh, is used. We'll look at that more fully in a few minutes. But let's realize that uh, Jesus teaches consistently that submission or servanthood is the way to true greatness. Look with me for a minute at Matthew 20 verses 26 to 28. Uh, if you have your Bibles with you, I hope you do. Uh, after the, two of the disciples wanted first and second places in the kingdom, uh, Jesus then said to them, beginning with verse, hard to read the number. I know that you are the ruler, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. But he who would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. All of us submit somebody Uh, members submit to the elders Uh, all of us submit to the governing authorities of our our nation Uh, all of us submit to God and over and over again the Bible teaches that submission is the way to true greatness the last shall be first and the first shall be last so when women are commanded to submit they're not being commanded to take a, a lesser role that implies anything like inferiority uh, as a matter of fact, it can be pro- clearly proven that submission does not, infer, uh, uh, does not imply inferiority. Jesus submits to God. I don't really have to prove that, but there are a number of passages throughout the Gospels and elsewhere that say it. But John 12, verses 49 and 50 says, For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life, what I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. Jesus clearly submits to the Father. And yet, it would be the rankest kind of heresy if I were to say that Jesus is inferior to the Father. The Bible teaches clearly that they're all equal in Godhood. Uh, they're all equal in power. They are one in all that they are and all that they do. Well, among the Godhead, none of are, 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 are inferior to the other but there is a rank in which others do submit to the other. First Corinthians 11 and verse 3, I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of the wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. So there is a, a submission among the Godhead, but not uh, inferiority. So women are not inferior to men just because they are urged to submit. Let's look for a minute or two at creation. Turn to Genesis 2, verses 5 to 9. Got some new glasses recently. I thought they were going to do better for me than they do. But anyway, we'll make it. I can read the writing. I can't see the numbers. (laughs) 5 to 9. When when no bush of the field had yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the earth, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was rising up from the ground, and watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust of the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. And the Lord planted a garden in the east of Eden, and in the East and there he put a man upon where he had the land he had formed, and out of the ground the Lord God made spring every tree that is pleasant to the sight and and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The next few verses talk about rivers, give you whatever we would know of the location of Eden. And probably that all changed with the flood. But then down at verse 12, verse 15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. There's never been a time when man was without work to do and obligation to fulfill. And man was to keep the garden and keep it when he was the only creature other than the beasts of the field and the fowls of the air that were even upon the earth. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I'll make him a helper fit for him. So that out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever man called every creature, that was his name. And the man gave names to all the livestock and the birds of the heavens and every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man and took from his side one of his ribs and closed it up with flesh. And the rib of the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made a woman and brought her to the man. And then he, the man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she is taken out of man. Read that at length and let you see in scripture that when God told Adam not to eat the tree of knowledge of good and evil, Eve wasn't there. No indication he ever said that to Eve. He said that to Adam. Adam was to be the head of the house. Adam was to be the spiritual leader of the house. It was his obligation to tell Eve what God had said. And then we come to the temptation uh, in uh, chapter 3, and uh, we realize that uh, uh, the serpent deceived Eve. I don't know if the word deceived is in that text, but later in the Bible. The Bible clearly says that Eve was deceived. It's interesting to me that the Bible says she saw that it was good for food. How do you see that it's good for food unless you see something else or somebody else eating it? I envision here that as the serpent, whoever he was and whatever he looked like, uh, tempted Eve to eat, he ate a bite himself to show, Mmm, this is good. You ought to try it. She saw that it was good for food. She realized that it was to be desired to make one wise. And while God had said, you shall not sh- if you eat thereof, it you shall surely die, the serpent simply lied and said, you shall not surely die. But you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. And so with all of that, she ate. It's usually uh, customary, I guess, to make note here of the fact that uh, the three avenues of temptation that John talks about, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, and the pride of life are all to be seen in what the devil does in tempting Eve. The lust of the flesh, it was good to eat. The, the lust of the eyes, it was desire, it was, let's see. Oh, the lust of the flesh is it's good. I've forgotten all that. Uh, but uh, the, the pride of life, of course, is the desire to be made one wise. A half-truth is still alive. Satan said, "You should be wise like God, knowing good and evil." It was called the true of knowledge of good and evil, so she could assume that she was, Satan was right in some degree that she would know good and evil if she ate that. But she did not know good and evil like God did. God knows good and evil from the standpoint of his nature is all good, and whatever is contrary to his nature is evil. God does not know evil through participating in it. And Eve is being tempted to know evil by participating in it, which is not a way that God knows evil at all. So he was right, you'll know good and evil, but he was wrong that you would be like God. And Eve bought it and ate. And when she ate, she immediately realized that she was a sinner. She Realized that she was naked. By the way, When she ate, she gave to her husband, Adam, and he did eat. He's supposed to be telling her what she's supposed to do, and he instead is listening to her when he he tells him what to do. And together, they both sin. Being deceived is bad. But walking into sin with your eyes wide awake and knowing you're sinning is worse. And that's evidently what Adam did. Because the Bible says that Eve was deceived and Adam wasn't. But the Bible also says by one man, sin entered, sin entered into the world and death through sin. And so death passed upon all people because all have sinned. So Adam sinned with his eyes wide open in direct rebellion to what God had said. While at the same time abdicating his place as the uh, spiritual leader of his, of his home. Uh, so there was a curse placed upon each uh, of the people involved in that uh, sin. Uh, first of all, upon the serpent. The uh, well, one thing he said, uh, "You'll have no legs and you'll crawl upon the earth." Did he have legs before? That's debated. Adam Clark, who's a fairly well-known commentator among us, uh, uh, said that at that time uh, the, the Satan was a, a an orangutan. Uh, ape-like thing, maybe so. And God cursed him to crawl up on the ground. I don't know the details of that, and neither does anybody else. But God did say, you'll be cursed, and you'll crawl up on the ground. And then he said to the, uh, to the serpent, and I'll put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed, and he, he shall bruise your heel, but you shall bruise his head. I have observed that among mankind generally, and particularly among women, there is a particular, almost unreasonable h- hatred of snakes. Uh, enmity is certainly there. Uh, my wife doesn't even want to look at one. Uh, doesn't want one anywhere around her. Doesn't matter whether it's a little green snake, completely harmless and eats a lot of insects, or whether it's a copperhead or a cottonmouth that's, that's poisonous, it's a snake, and she has nothing to do with it. And she's not unique. Almost all the women I've ever known are that way, and a good many men are as well. But this would surely be a greater pronouncement if all that was saying was a triviality that women and men are going to be afraid of snakes. There's another part to that that reaches beyond that idea when it says And he, that is the seed of woman, will bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Seed of woman is not an unheard of statement, an unheard of idea, but it's fairly rare. Generally, it's man who is said to have seed. But Jesus is, in a unique way, the seed of woman. And when she was born, when he was born, uh, he... Grew up to become our Savior, and most of us know that Satan inspired to have him crucified to try to keep him God from putting him on the throne. It didn't work, but that's the way in which Satan bruised his heel. A bruise to the head is a lot worse than a bruise to the heel. So this is saying that the seed of woman would be conqueror of the seed of men, and he did when he was raised from the dead. He came to the world, Hebrews says, in order that he might put to death him who had the power of death, even Satan, and deliver for all their lifetime those who through fear of death were in bondage. So Jesus, in his resurrection from the grave, delivered a fatal blow to Satan by bruising his head. In another place, Paul told the... uh, uh, Corinthians, that uh, Satan will bruise, that God will bruise Satan under your feet shortly. Obvious an allusion to that same uh, same fact. And when Jesus was raised from the dead, Satan received a, a fatal wound that he never recovered from. It is now certain that uh, the victory is won. Uh, the battle still continues, but the war is over. Uh, the war has been won, and Jesus won it when he was raised from the dead. It's up to us now as the, uh, uh, some of the skirmishes continue to decide at some point which side we're on. We can be on the winning side or the losing side, but we have ways to know which one is which. And if we are subject to Christ, submissive to him, belong to him, trust in him, then the victory is ours, and the Bible assures us of that fact. We're talking about women's submission, and there are two main texts that deal with that in in worship. Uh, I'm getting forgetful in my old age, and one of the things I forgot, I asked David Phillips, if he would, to begin our class with prayer. We're not beginning, but David, will you go ahead and do that, please? God bless. Thank you. Amen. Two main texts deal with women in worship and Bible study and, and prayer and that sort of thing. And one of them is in First Corinthians fourteen, verses thirty three to thirty eight. If you have your Bibles turn to first Corinthians fourteen, thirty three. We'll get there in just a minute. In First Corinthians, there is clear evidence that the Corinthians wrote Paul a letter and ask him certain questions. And in, uh, when he begins to do that, he answers the question by saying, now concerning the things about which you wrote. And then you say concerning this and concerning that. So he's talking about the questions they ask him. And one of them, according to uh, uh, chapter 11, verse, chapter 12, verse 1, is they ask him about spiritual gifts. And he responds, saying in chapter, 11, chapter 12 that we all have different gifts and no one gift is better than the other. Every gift is useful and every gift ought to be used for the purpose of helping win others to Christ. But nobody can say my gift is not useful, I'm worth nothing, and nobody can say my gift is better than yours and I'm worth more than you. For all gifts are important and all of them are necessary to the function of the body. And the second thing that chapter 12 tells us uh, is that uh, uh, with these different gifts, well, I've already mentioned it, we are supposed to use every one, whatever we have, to uh, help win souls. Uh, One of the problems with the famous uh, heresy among us was the fact that they decided that uh, everybody needs to be a soul winner, but there's only one way to win souls, and you've got to do it exactly this way or you're not faithful. That flies in the face of everything that 1 Corinthians 12 says. Uh, My gift may not be the same as yours, yours may not be the same as mine, but whatever gift I have, I can use it to help win others uh, to to the Lord. So I may not, one of us may be able to sit down with somebody in a a private place and around a table and and convert somebody. Another one of us may be able to stand up in class uh, and teach a class Another one of us may be able simply to teach our own children the way of the Lord and bring them up in in the way of the Lord. Another one of us may just be able to do good works and and therefore to get other people ready to listen when somebody else teaches them the Bible. Lots of different gifts, but all of them can be used to help bring about the ultimate goal of winning others uh, to the Lord. Beginning with verse 33, the latter part, the Bible says, "...as in all the churches of the saints..." the women should keep silent in the churches. For they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. I want to talk a minute about for in all the churches and in church. The word there is the same word that's elsewhere translated church throughout the Bible, and it's ecclesia. The original meaning of words... Is found out by looking at its usage. It's not discovered by looking at its etymology. Etymology means what two things are put together to make the word. And an, an English example of that is we used to talk about agriculture and manufacturing. Manu is by hand, factor is to make. So the difference between Agriculture and manufacturing was, agriculture was grown in the ground, manufacturing was made by hand. Nowadays, when we talk about manufacturing, we primarily think of made by machinery, and we think of a big company doing that. The meaning of the word has changed by, use, by its usage. It no longer means made by hand. It now means made by factory. The etymology of church is called out. And the way you get an assembly, of course, is to call people out of the general population and bring them into the assembly. But the basic meaning by usage of the word ecclesia is assembly. Uh, You can prove that to yourself by looking at the only places in the Bible where ecclesia is used to mean something other than the assembly God made or Jesus made. In Acts chapter 19, in three different Passages, three different verses, verse 32, verse 39, and verse 41. The word ecclesia is found, but because it's not talking about Christ's ecclesia, it is translated assembly. And it's describing a town assembly that was called together to enforce a law, and because it was unauthorized, uh, one of the town fathers said, We're in danger of being called together. Called on cow carpet for this because it's not a lawful assembly, but assembly is used in three cases to talk about a town assembly that basically was called together to uh, condemn Adam, uh, condemn Paul for the preaching that he was being do- was doing <coughs> in, in Ephesus, when Jesus said, "Upon this rock I will build my assembly." That's a word to use. And that's what it means. On this rock I'll build my assembly. We recognize that it was his assembly that came out of that. And it's his assembly. This is interesting. It's his assembly, whether it's assembled or not. Uh, When Paul made havoc of the church entering into every house and hailing men and women to prison, he made havoc of the assembly, but he did it house to house. Uh, A sidelight, When some brethren maintain that there's such a distinct difference between what the church can do and what individuals can do, (coughs) they forget the fact that individuals collectively are still the assembly whether they're assembled or not. (coughs) In some cases, brethren make the church to be either what happens in the building or what's taken out of the church collection. And anything else that individuals do collectively is not the church. (coughs) But biblically, for example, if I were a a person who had some means and my mother or grandmother or aunt was in need of uh, assistance, I'm not supposed to call the church. I'm supposed to do it myself and let the church not be charged. But if I were to go about and uh, not ask for it out of the treasury, but if I were to ask uh, Ferris and Don and John and Pierce and seven or eight others to help me, and they did, that would still be the church helping me. Uh, It doesn't have to go through the treasury to be the church. Uh, Another sidelight, There's a proposal one day back when the Orphan's home became a major issue. And uh, a brother who was sort of the head of the non-institutional group (coughs) proposed that instead of sending money from the church treasury to uh, Orphan's home, they didn't believe in human institutions, as they called it, (coughs) let's put a bucket in the outer foyer. And as people pass by, let them put the money for the orphan's home in there and not take it out of the church, treasury. Well, the fallacy of that is, you do that, that's still the church doing it as the church passes by. One of our brethren made fun of that, and it is to be made fun of in a way. He said, what's the difference between passing a plate by the people and passing the people by the plate? It's still the same people doing it. It's still the church doing it, and it was rejected. But even though it didn't really solve the problem, as most of us saw it, it still, if it would brought to unity and didn't hurt anybody, didn't violate any scripture, in my opinion, it would have been the thing to do. And in addition to that, I have a suspicion that the children's home would get more money that way than they do by what we elders decide to give them out of the church treasury. Uh, I remember Brother Lonzo Welsh in Memphis who was head of St. Brook Children's Home. <laughs> I don't use the term anti here often, but I'm quoting him. He said, if the aunties knew how little the churches support us, they'd, they'd fellowship us. <laughs> uh, but I imagine they would even get more money. But that's beside the point. I'm just saying that if there's something we can do that really doesn't make a lot of sense, but nevertheless doesn't violate any scripture, that would help promote unity. I, I, I just believe we don't think as highly of unity as Jesus did, and the Bible does. <coughs> that's, elabor- that's an elaboration needed for another... Day, but I'll probably do that sometime. Uh, in all the churches of the saints, Paul is saying I teach this everywhere I go, and it's the same everywhere. In the church is understood to be in the assembly. If the whole church become together, chapter 14, verse 23, so obviously he's talking about a major assembly of all the Christians. That's the place where it goes on to say the women are to keep silent In church, in the churches, because it's shameful for women to speak in church. If you read that, that it's uh, shameful for a woman to speak in assembly. In all the assemblies of the saints, this is the commandment that women not speak out in assembly. That's what's being said in that chapter, and the fact that he talks about the time when everybody comes together at the same time, and the fact that the basic meaning of the word church is assembly makes it clear that that's what it's talking about. In the same chapter, he argues that speaking in tongues, which is speaking in a language they had never had the opportunity to learn but were miraculously given the ability to speak it, Uh, speaking in tongues in a congregation where everybody spoke the same language and this was a different language would not edify the church. It wouldn't really help anybody. And you can do that still as a sign, he said, because that shows that God is with you and blessing you and then shows your word to be true but it doesn't edify the church. So therefore, in the same chapter, he says, let the tongue speakers be silent in the church unless there's an interpreter. Again, that's obviously in the assembly. In a sense, both women in church tongue speakers are always in the, in the church, but it's only in assembly that they are commanded to keep silent. Uh, that word silent in connection with that verse is a word that uh, specifically means be quiet. Uh, keep your mouth shut <laughs> in a vernacular kind of way. Um, and uh, it, it implies then that women are not to speak out. And the example that he uses is even to speak out and ask a question. They won't know anything, let them ask their husbands at home. Uh, that's a general statement. I think it would be fair to say it would be all right for them to ask their husbands in the car and the chariot on the way home. Uh, it would be asked, all right for them to ask a another close kinsman if he didn't have a husband. But the idea is don't speak out with a question in the assembly. Uh, now most of us believe because we practice that uh, it's alright for a woman to confess Christ in the assembly when she responds. It's alright for a woman to sing in the assembly. Uh, Paul implies that it's alright for the women in all the church to say amen when prayer prayers pray that they agree with. Uh, but... Uh, those are exceptions, and it seems to me what the passage is really saying is that a woman is not to speak out in such a way as to interrupt the service, so to speak, or to take a speaking part in the service, uh, because it's a shame for women to do that in church, in assembly. Uh, that ought to be fairly clear, and uh, I think ought to be followed. But then in 2 Timothy, there's another passage that bears on this subject, and uh, it's a different passage and, and, and says a different thing. I look at 1 Timothy chapter 2, beginning with verse 8. 1 Timothy. First of all, I want to point out that there are two words in the Greek language for men. This version I use... The English Standard Version translates one of them as people because it means men in the sense of mankind. The way we used to use men regularly before the feminists got all excited about it uh, to mean both men and women. There's another word for men on there that specifically means males, and you know, adult males at that. Now let's look at the First Timothy 2 passage for a moment. 1 Timothy 2, he uses the first word, a word that means mankind generally, includes both men and women, a number of times in the earlier part of the chapter. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. I would that supplications, prayers and intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all men. This version says all people. For kings and for all who are in our authority. Chapter 6, who desires all people to be saved and come to knowledge of the truth. For there's one God and there's one mediator between God and man, which is anthropos, people, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. So he is God and man, but he's not God and male, although he is, but he is God and anthropos, Men and women, because he's mediator for all. But then you get down to verse 8, and he says, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. And there he switches over to the word aner, which means specifically men, male, uh, adult males, that men in every place should pray. Likewise the women. So he's making a contrast between men and women. Men pray. Women adorn themselves with respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair or gold or spilled pearls, or costly attire, costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness, with good works. Don't dress up in all kinds of elaborate dress in order to impress people. Don't let that be the way you try to impress people. Impress people by adorning yourself with good works is what he's suggesting. When we talk about modesty, we usually think of showing too much skin. And that is immodest, <coughs> depending on how much you show, but uh, certainly uh, I, I can't imagine any circumstances under which a bikini would be called modest. Uh, but uh, it does; rec- it is different from what is being talked about in the Bible when it talks about being modest. But what it is saying is don't dress in such a way as to attract attention to yourself, but rather uh, use your good works and use your godly life to attract attention to yourself. That's, that's the basic thing he says about modesty. It certainly is true that a person who bears more skin than most everybody else around them is indeed being immodest. But in the Bible, it's always overdressing and not underdressing that is called immodesty. And that's because nobody underdressed in those days. Uh, It was was, uh, very much like it is among Muslims today, that uh, they might have quarreled about whether to let their head show or their hair show, but they never quarreled about their legs or other portions of their anatomy. Uh, So it wasn't a problem then of that kind of immodesty, but it was a problem for uh, people buying a lot of gold and silver and braided hair and beautiful dresses and, make an impression on people beyond what the ordinary person does. And that's what's immodesty in in this uh, instance. But then it goes on to say that the women are to dress themselves in modest apparel, uh, in in respectful apparel with modesty and self-control, with braided hair and gold. But it says then in verse 11 that a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach Uh, the Greek could be read or in any other way to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. The word quiet there is the same word that is used in the first verse of the chapter where it says pray for the rulers that they may enable us to live a peaceful and quiet life. Uh, That's not obviously quiet in the sense of never saying anything. That's simply quiet in the sense of peaceful or, or careful. So, This passage in 1 Timothy Is not saying women are to keep silent in the churches; they are simply to be submissive in what he's talking about here. But notice here he says, "In every place, verse eight, I desire it." Every place. Uh, So this is not the assembly; this is other places where people gather together to teach or pray or in other words, do religious things. I'd say like a Bible class or like a small group gathering or. Uh, like a devotional that uh, young people have, just a few or several, but not the whole church. Uh, In those instances, the women are not to keep silent, but they are simply to be submissive and not to take leadership, not to exercise authority or in any other way, uh, not to teach or in in other way to exercise authority. So my take on that is what we've always done. In a Bible class, it's permissible for a woman to raise her hand and ask a question. If the teacher asks a question, it's permissible for the woman to speak out answer the question that he asked. The husband, the teacher, is always in charge of the church. He's the one with the authority, but uh, others can speak out, including women. And I'll admit to you, I've been taught some very valuable, important Bible lessons by women in Bible classes responding to a question or, or referring to a passage of Scripture and talking about what it means. Nothing wrong with that. I've also been taught some very valuable lessons by women who caught me in, this, uh, in the foyer right after uh, I would finished a sermon. Uh, uh, I won't go into detail about that because we haven't got time. But uh, it's not saying in any way that women cannot inform men in any way. But it's simply saying they're not to take authority in the way that a teacher has authority over the class, but otherwise can speak out and, and say uh, what, they, what they wish. That ought to be... Uh, Janice, is that helpful? (laughs) Janice does a lot of kidding about some of these things, but she sometimes asks, is it all right for her to speak out in class? And it says, indeed, that all women can do that in this kind of setting where it's not the whole assembly uh, come together. Very quickly, I need to get through with this because we won't have time to come back. Uh, It's certainly not because women don't know as much about Scripture. Uh, It's certainly not because... uh, they're not as smart or as intelligent. They, indeed, for the most part, many of them may be even more intelligent than the person who's doing the teaching. But nevertheless, they're to recognize the importance of, of submission to men. What can men do then and women do then in the church? Well, they can love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, strength, and mind. They can love their neighbor as their And I could go on down the line. Virtually everything that anybody, including men, are commanded to do, women can do except for preaching, being an elder, and speaking out in the assembly, taking authority in smaller groups. Other than that, uh, they're wide open to do exactly what God tells everybody else to do. So let's be about our assigned roles, and uh, thank you for listening.